Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live Doug, Live with Doug, and hopefully Live Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad to have you with us as we continue our study of the book of Isaiah. And today, we are in one of my favorite sections, or at least we are beginning one of my favorite sections in the book of Isaiah, and indeed in the entire Old Testament. It is a passage very familiar to all of us because of George Frederick Handel, who put a couple of these verses in Isaiah 9, uh, eternally set to a wonderful musical arrangement that we sing every Christmas, even though it's uh, far more than just a Christmas uh, message. Anyway, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. Now, before we get into uh, the main text we want to cover, I want to I remind you of the setting. God has been declaring, predicting ahead of time that there are dark days coming for the Jews. He is, uh, his patience has run out with their sin, their idolatry, their pursuing of anything and anyone other than him for help, for strength, for comfort, and especially for obedience. Uh, these are a wicked, idolatrous people. And God has warned them over and over again that judgment is coming. And he's going to bring foreign lands, foreign kings, to be the instruments of devastation against his people. And remember, there's there are two kingdoms, right? Let me pull up the, uh, the map for you. Two kingdoms. They're up in the green, for those of you watching on video. Uh, that's the northern kingdom, what is often referred to in the Old Testament as Israel or Ephraim, sometimes Jacob. And then there's the southern kingdom, which is typically goes by the name Judah. So we've got these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, and you see there on the left in that little uh, black and red box, uh, the northern kingdom fell in 722 BC, and then the southern kingdom fell a little bit later than that, 586. Now, I, the 722 is uh, when the northern kingdom was, uh, you know, just defeated. It was no longer really in any sense, a, a nation of its own. But the, the, the siege and the, and the takeover began earlier. Uh, even in our day, most wars are not over in a, in a day, even with our technology and such. Uh, certainly that day, it took a much greater amount of time to, uh, to, to invade and to win the battle. So uh, it, it all began earlier, and the signs of God's judgment and the, and the fear that would have spread to the people began well before the, uh, before the final fall of either of these kingdoms. And the threats were there, and you hear rumors, right? They hear rumors of wars, they hear rumors of, of different nations, and as, a, as Assyria's power grew and as they uh, began to uh, start their takeover of much of the known world at that time, you know, the, those stories come and people began to fear. Well, in uh, around 733, uh, Assyria made strong inroads into the northern lands. Uh, if we go back to the map again. Uh, so they came from the north. I think you all can see my cursor now. They came from the north and they took over this area up here, Aram and down toward the western side of the Sea of Galilee into this area here. So uh, in around 733, 
this, all of this area came under Assyrian rule. So Samaria, the capital of Israel, didn't fall until 722, but the writing was on the wall. Uh, the fear that spread through the northern kingdom and indeed into the southern kingdom uh, was, was widespread because here they come. Well, does anybody know? Uh, good morning, Dale. Good morning, Keith. The rest of you who are with us. Does anybody know which tribes of Israel occupied uh, this land up here, sort of the western side of the Galilee and a little bit southwest? Any uh, any Old Testament scholars? Any any uh, any of you trivia buffs that that might know how this was divided up? I should have pulled up one of those uh, one of those maps that shows the breakdown of all the lands. Maybe uh, give you just a second here. I know you're on a slight delay, and see if anybody happens to know. Or if you don't, just know if you know the passage or have looked ahead at the passage we're studying. <laughs> I'll get to see my own thunder here uh, and give away uh, why I brought this up. Then you might be able to figure it out. Well, let me read uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Dale says, not Levi. Yep, there's a there's lightning mind. Dale has had his, his second cup of coffee already, haven't you? That's, that's clever. It's good. Do the rest of you know why that's clever and why he could be so sure it's not the land of Levi? The Levites had to live somewhere, right? So let me uh, read Isaiah 9, the first verse, and uh, I bet you can figure it out. It says this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephthali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So you probably figured it out. Zebulun and Nephtali, or Nephtali, I know some people pronounce it. So this area up here was where Zebulun and Nephtali uh, had their heritage, their inheritance. So we ended chapter 8 with the people will pass through the land. They'll be hard-pressed and famished. Uh, it will turn out when they are hungry, they'll be enraged and cursed by their king and their god. They're going to cry out and curse everyone, everything because of their poverty. And they're going to curse their leadership and ultimately curse God. And then they're going to look to the earth and says, behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be driven away into darkness. So this is the prediction. And then it begins to come true. Uh, I, I don't know what uh, what people in Ukraine are going through. Uh, you know, here in the U.S., as an American, I've just never been under threat of invasion. And I dare say that none of my American uh, friends who are listening have ever been in a real threat of invasion. We, we don't know what that's like. We're, we're such a big land mass. We've been the world's largest power for a long time now. Uh, we don't have wars on our soil. Uh, you know, Canada, uh, is anybody afraid that Canada is going to mount up uh, an offensive against the U.S. and come down and take us over? No. Are we afraid that someone's going to come up from the south? No. We just, we don't expect that now. 
you may have other other nations in mind and other ways of, of America uh, caving, <laughs> imploding. Uh, but as far as all out invasion, that kind of war, that's just not the kind of thing that we are afraid of. It's not, it doesn't seem realistic to us. But Ukraine, right, there had been talk for a long time about Russia invading Ukraine. And it has happened, we're seeing it happen right now. It, it, it's fascinating on um, uh, on many levels to uh, to think that this war is going on and it was all the news a few months ago and now we just don't hear much about it but for the people in Ukraine it's a it's a very real situation right and, and we hear reports every now and then of, of a little bit more takeover and all of that uh, Janice has accepted the American Revolution when the Redcoats from Britain came to take our guns yes uh, but that was so long ago right uh we we just you know that has no real um uh pathos for us no real uh, we we can't really relate we read about it in the history books like any other invasion but but you're right uh I'm sure for the colonists and such that uh, early days that was uh more realistic but for us it's just it's just not a real thing but in ukraine and, and as russia continues to move down and, and i know the warfare is different but you can imagine the fear for your average citizen, uh, what they, as they hear the bombs going off and they, they know people are dying and they just think, uh, am I next? And we're just going to end and are we going to be completely taken over by Russia? And the desire for help, um, desire for someone else, for NATO, for the U.S., for somebody to come and, and provide uh, strength and help. That's certainly something that uh, is on their mind. Well, that's, that's what's going on here. So God has warned Israel that they are going to be conquered. But remember, the prophets are going through the land saying, no, no, no. Isaiah, Jeremiah, those people are crazy. Isaiah was off his rock, rocker. There's peace, peace, peace. And God says, these prophets are saying peace when there is no peace. I am bringing judgment. But no, no, the, the they were listening to the prophets and consulting the spiritists, the mediums, and and all they the only news they would allow to the people was good news. No, the Lord is with us. We have his law. We're fine. And, and then they start hearing that Nephtali and Zebulun have been conquered. Now fear spreads throughout the lands, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, because they realize they had been deceived and the, the, the end is coming for them. Uh, so that's that's what's happening. That's what Isaiah is predicting here at the end of chapter 8. So time-wise, it would seem that chapter 9 probably takes place after the invasion and takeover of those Galilean areas, but before the fall of Samaria. Does that make sense? Uh, we don't know for sure, but it, it seems most likely that he would allude to what has happened there. But he would have talked about Samaria and, and the whole land if this were after uh, the full devastation. At least that's what makes sense to me. So, again, put yourself in their shoes. Of uh, Some of the land has been taken. The fear, uh, the, the anxiety that would spread through uh, your household, through your friends, through all of the Jews here as they realize, oh, this is coming. 
and there's not much we can do about it. And then put yourself in the, in the sandals of those who come later when the devastation does reach all the way through the entire northern kingdom and then eventually in the southern kingdom. So imagine the Jews reading this that we're about to look at uh, generations after both kingdoms are conquered. This is a hopeful passage for those. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And all these verbs in the Hebrew, by the way, are past tense. So they're, they're as good as done because God has determined it. No more gloom. Day of darkness and gloom is coming. There will be no more gloom. She was in anguish. But that anguish is going to come to an end. In earlier times, 733-ish, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali with contempt. God was angry at these lands. But later on, he shall make it glorious. God's wrath against his people is not the end of the story. We've seen this already over and over again in Isaiah, and here it is again. By the way of the sea... On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. So again, look at the map, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, that's usually what the Old Testament means by sea. So this area by the sea, across the Jordan, and along the Galilee area, there's going to be light, there's going to be hope. Now notice how he describes it. Galilee of the nations, of the Gentiles. That's not how Galilee was referred. Uh, it's, not, it's not the way uh, the Old Testament refers to Galilee. Gentiles, nations, that's not part of it. The nations are coming. Assyria is coming. Then Babylon. Right? The nations are coming. And what was once Jewish land is going to be taken over by foreign nations, and it's called Galilee of the Nations. We know where this is going. This is a messianic passage, a messianic prophecy. And I think it's important that Isaiah here at the beginning of this announcement of the Messiah refers to the land, not as the land of the Jews, but of the nations. When Jesus showed up and he said, I have sheep of another fold, and the Jews became very angry, the leaders did at least, the Pharisees became very angry with him for saying that. They simply, like in so many other occasions, they simply were ignoring the clear teaching of the Old Testament. This isn't the clearest in Isaiah. We'll see that later on. But here, even at the first announcement of the Messiah, the nations are included. Jesus was never intended merely for the Jews. And I dare say our dispensational friends also misread the Old Testament, especially the old school dispensationalists who said that Jesus came and presented himself to the Jews. And if they had accepted him, then that would have brought in the kingdom right then and there. Uh, unless that vision, that view also includes a robust uh, global, national, multinational kingdom, uh, anybody who thinks that Jesus came merely for the Jews uh, is simply misreading the scripture. 
he's coming for the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness, right? They're conquered. They're, they're under the control of others. They're in anguish and gloom. They will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. We remember, remember Simeon. We looked at this in Luke. Simeon, when he sees the baby Jesus, quotes this text. And he's saying this is the fulfillment. This is the consolation of Israel. The one promised for Israel and the nations. They will see a great light. Why? Because the light has come. Why does Jesus refer to himself as the light? Why does John continue to refer to Jesus as the light? Because of passages like this. They're in darkness. They've been conquered. But the light is coming. They'll see a great light. Light will shine on them. Uh, the face of God that has been hidden from them, the light of his face will shine on them again. You, says Lord, you shall multiply the nation. Remember, a remnant shall return. That was one of Isaiah's son's name. And the repeated emphasis we've seen already in Isaiah, we'll see more of it. God's going to bring devastation, but there will always be a remnant well, a remnant is a very small number. But here, Isaiah says, you will multiply the nation. The nation will not stay small. It will be multiplied. It will increase. Not only will their number increase, he says, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. You will be among them again, and they will be glad in that. As with the gladness or the rejoicing of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So I was, I was pondering this, and it raised a question in my mind. I'm curious if you have any, uh, any feedback to this. We are told to rejoice. Paul, the apostle, says, rejoice in the Lord always, right? And when things get very difficult, when things are, when we sort of feel like we're walking in darkness and gloom, which, you know, dark days do come, even though we're living in, in the light of the fulfillment of the Messiah, we're, we're people of the Messiah, we still have dark times. And we can rejoice in the hope of the Lord of what's coming and rest in him. Uh, so we know that. And that's why we can rejoice in all times. Because we don't rejoice in all circumstances, for sure. We don't rejoice at sin and that kind of thing. But when the Lord is pouring out abundant blessing on us, temporal, tangible, experiential blessing, I, I wonder if... The question that's raised in my mind is, are we good at celebrating those things? Are we, are we people who rejoice in his temporal provision and, and gifts? There's certainly a, a mindset among some Christians that really downplays the temporal. Uh, as we, we, we have almost a a functional Gnosticism at times in the New Covenant, in the, in the, in the modern-day church. 
And I think that's misguided. Certainly, we can become materialistic. We can become, um, we can get too comfortable in this life as though this life is all there is. And, and there are probably Christians that are there and, and maybe other generations have been there. But it sure, it seems to me, especially in a lot of theologically minded, reformed, kind of uh, deeper thinking uh, Christianity, uh, we, can, we can almost become a functional Gnostic people. And, and one of the ways to, to fight that, I think, and one of the w- things that we need to rediscover is great celebration of God's victories and blessings and gifts here and now. The gospel is not believe and you'll be saved and just hang on for your dear life until you die. The gospel of the kingdom is a worldwide vision. He, he's come for the Galilee of the nations. And we're to live this life for his glory, not just in some sentimental, quiet time. Right? My time alone with God, and then I got to go live with the world. No, it's, that, that's just a, a false view. Uh, it's not a biblical view of what it means to be a Christian. So I think of something very, very wonderful. The reason I took some time on Monday, briefly, uh, here to celebrate Roe v. Wade being overturned is because we need to look at that as great victory. We have been in a war as the church against Roe v. Wade for 49 years. And God gave us victory. Now, is that war against abortion done? No. But this was a, this was a great knock to the other side. This was a huge blow to them. And I would encourage you to think this through. If you're, if you're part of a church fellowship and your church leaders did not celebrate this, or if their default immediately was how the church has failed to do something, we're not loving people enough, uh, we need to not celebrate this, but we need to, we need to um, feel almost guilty for things we haven't done. And, and oh, the, the, those poor people who are, uh, I don't know, if, if there wasn't a great sense of celebration and victory in your church, that should bother you. I think that introduces all kinds of bad thinking, frankly, about what abortion is and what's going on. Conversely, celebrate. I would even say on Monday, July 4th, celebrate God's good gift of the United States of America and our independence. There are a lot of reasons to be uh, concerned about where our nation has gone in recent decades and certainly in recent months and years. And we could be heading into a period of darkness and gloom as well. But maybe not. Maybe we're seeing signs of a change of path, change of course. Maybe the church is going to get a backbone and take this Roe v. Wade thing as as wind in our sails to, uh, I keep changing my metaphors, to uh, take new ground. As it is currently, I can tell you these things freely without fear of persecution 
I might get censored. I've had a couple of my videos censored. I might get censored for this. And I'm sure I could say the magic words that even a small channel like mine would get censored. But right now we have the freedom. You have the freedom of worship and gathering to worship. And we have votes. I hope you voted yesterday if there were primaries and things going on. I hope you'll vote in November. We have those freedoms. Take some time on Monday and celebrate God's good, good, good gifts of things going on in the U.S. You know, we celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and that kind of thing, not for any real accomplishment, but uh, just, you know, it's kind of hard to find too much rush. <laughs> sometimes for for birthdays for couple anyway no i'm not down on birthdays but I, but we need to make sure that we continue to ramp up celebration of god and his gifts to us as the provider of every good thing we don't celebrate his gift of food because we're so sure that we're going to have plenty of food our, our cupboards are full all that to say you think I just went off on some political tangent here, but no, I'm trying to set up verse three here. God says, I'm going to multiply the nation. I will increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, in God's presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. My concern is we can't even relate to this because we just, we don't fight battles. We're not, we're not pursuing things and working hard for things to be productive and to conquer enemies so that we don't really relate to the idea of rejoicing at harvest and dividing the spoil. If we were an agricultural people who we had to spend our time in the spring, all of us, for survival, we had to turn the soil. We had to get our plows. We had to, had to hitch up the oxen, sharpen the blades, and get out there. And, and it was a whole family enterprise where the men are out there laboring in the fields. The women are in the houses cooking Lots and lots of food for all the laborers because that labor makes you hungry and they'd come in at noon and they need to eat. And then they'd go back out and continue to, to, to hoe the, the rows and plant the seed and dig up the, uh, the, the weeds and fertilize and all that. And the, and the women, the daughters, they are making more and more food because those laborers are coming back in and get, because they're going to be hungry again at dinner time. And, and, you know, then all the, the, the women and children are also out there working with the dads. Everybody had a role to play to plant those fields. And then all summer long, you got to tend them. You can keep the weeds out, keep the wild animals out. And then you got to pray for rain. Because there might be periods of time when the rain doesn't come. And if the Lord brings rain, come the fall, everybody's get out, got to get out there and work really hard again to, to gather all the grain. To separate the wheat from the chaff. To store the good stuff. And what would they do every year? When that happened, when they had a huge harvest of food, they would throw a party, sing, 
dance, drink wine, revel in God's goodness of providing enough food to get you through the winter until springtime comes and you do it all over again. We don't do any of that. Because we don't have to. I'm thankful. We should be thankful. I can sit here and spend my time teaching you the word of God because I don't have to go out and plow a field. But we miss out on the gladness of working hard for something and then seeing God bring results and rejoicing and celebrating. Or war. Most of us never will experience anything having to do with war. And that's good, but we miss out. We have to work to get in the mindset of there's a battle raging and you have to fight, physically fight swords and bows and arrows and such. And then when the Lord gives you the victory over your enemy, and you've conquered that other nation. And now all of their wealth is yours. You rejoice in, in the fact that you weren't defeated, but you were the conqueror. And now your wealth has increased exponentially. The soldiers get to share in, in all the wealth of the people they've conquered. Those are the images that God uses to say, when he brings the light to the people who live in darkness, they're going to dance and sing and celebrate as the time of harvest or as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Well, I didn't intend to spend our whole <laughs> morning on those things, but... I just want to leave you with this. Give some thought to how you can incorporate more celebration. Maybe it starts with actual clearer pursuit of battles and, and sowing, S-O-W, where you're very intentional about working toward things, being productive in, in the battles he's given us to fight. And then as he grants victory and gives us uh, the reaping, take time as an individual, as a family, as a church to celebrate these very tangible, temporal, earthly gifts so that we can relate to the idea that God really is the one who is the father of all good gifts. And then put yourself in the mindset of a time when that when you were defeated and and you were dependent on others for food and they might not provide. Just try to get yourself in the mindset. I, again, I think we as I would encourage all the fathers who are who are listening here, you need to lead your family in this so they can have uh, some sense of the celebration. That, that Isaiah is seeing here when Messiah comes. And guess what? He has come.
I'm going to leave you with this. I'm going to be done. I, I don't want to get too far down this path, but our traditional church model of going to a service in a building where one man or a handful of people are doing everything and the rest of us are largely spectators, we miss out on the, the, the fellowship and the celebration around the Lord's Supper and the fellowship and, and, and love, and the love feasts as the New Testament uh, seems to describe it. We miss out on that in the traditional model. Some of you are in very, very high liturgical, high, high liturgy churches where you go up and, and you have, you know, a little one-on-one session with the pastor. That's not how the New Testament describes the Lord's Supper. Well, frankly, even in low liturgy churches, that's still kind of how it is, right? Anyway, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not trying to provoke unnecessary turmoil here and controversy. I'm just saying this, the, the Lord's Supper, uh, if you're in a, in a traditional church and you are in a small group, how great would it be to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as that small group and share victory stories with what God is giving to celebrate and be glad in God's provision, all flowing from, first and foremost, his death and resurrection, of course. But that's not where his blessing stops. That's that's the foundation of it. But he's the father of all good gifts. He's the provider of all good things. So anyway, I know I'm, I'm going all over the place. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not really trying to lecture on it, lecture us on ecclesiology as much as, uh, for those of you who don't know, that's the, the, the study of church and, uh, and, uh, kind of how we do church, so to speak. But I really am trying to reintroduce to some of us the, the living life now and celebrating God's good gifts now as a foretaste of all that is coming and specific for Isaiah to help us realize when God uses these images and, and metaphors, um, we miss out. This is a very real situation of these people, the Jews who were a, an exiled, conquered people, and God is promising great victory and celebration. So with that, I'm going to leave you for the day to think about, and uh, we will come back tomorrow and continue to work toward our uh, uh, view of the the child has been born, a son has been given. Have a great day in the Lord. We'll see you tomorrow.